Amen. And just to reiterate what Elizabeth said, we, we want to help you get connected. And coming to church on Sunday mornings is, is great. It, is, it can be hard to meet people and make relationships if it's just Sunday mornings. And so we believe the power of the church is when you're connected like a family. And so maybe you're new here. Maybe you've been visiting for a couple of weeks. A community group is just it's a great way to meet some other people. Or maybe you want to go deeper. You want to go deeper with Christ. You feel like you're just kind of just kind of hovering along in your walk with Christ, and you want to go deeper and you want to be challenged. The grow groups are great. We've had these groups meeting for years, confessing sin. Every time you meet, you're studying God's word together. You're praying for each other. I mean, it's a deeper relationship with two others. And so what we're seeing in these, these grow groups, we're seeing great, deep discipleship. And like Elizabeth said, you know, the, the hope with the grow group is that you would seek after making disciples of other people. But what happens and what we, we recognize, it's, it's just how we are. We get in a grow group and we share. We don't like to share private things with lots of people. So we get in our grow group and finally we, we share and we confess and what happens is, is we really like our group to the point that we don't want our group to change. We don't want other people to come in, and we, we're sympathetic to that. But the hope is, is that not only would we be a part of the discipleship process, but we'd make other people into disciples so that we love it so much, let's invite this other person into my, that's in my life to come and join me in this group, and I will make a disciple of them. And so the hope is, is that we would be praying as we meet in our grow groups, who has God put in my life that wants to take the next step with Jesus? And how can I be the one to do that? Because that's the call for you. It's not my call to make disciples. It is my call, but it's not just my call. It's for all of us to make disciples. And so this is how we do it. That's not even the sermon this morning, but we, I encourage you, find a group, take a step, continue to grow with Jesus. This morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 2. So if you have a Bible and you can turn there, we'll put the verses on the screen. This morning, we're going to look at just the first 11 verses of chapter 2. We've been walking through the book of 2 Samuel. So this week, just 11 verses. Next week, we're going to go through the whole, the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3. So this week, we're setting the stage. Then next week, we get the story of Abner, and it is a wild story. So um, that's where we are today. I'll read the first 11 verses, and then we'll pray. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came. And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you've done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. 
But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come to your text this morning and we pray that you would teach us, that you would show us, that you would challenge us through this story written so long ago. But today, by your Spirit and through this truth, God, that you would change our lives. And so, God, we pray against any distraction, any burden, any stress, any exhaustion that would keep us from hearing from you this morning. But we pray, God, that you would help us. Help us to hear. Help us to understand. Holy Spirit, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So our outline for the morning, if you want an outline for our text, three points going up, one through four, sending out, five through seven, pushing back, eight through 11. The verse one begins, after this, similar to how we started last week in chapter one, after what? What has just happened and where is David going now? Well, David has just been mourning the loss of Saul, the king. Jonathan, his best friend, the loss of Israel to the hands of the Philistines, they had won. And if you remember last week, it was a week of lamentation of mourning, of fasting, of sadness. And just like chapter one started, it's the same kind of beginning. There is an after. There is an after. David isn't stuck in the mourning. He is not lost in the despair of the loss of King Saul and Jonathan. There is a new day. There is an after. And this should be encouraging that David, after such grief, now has an after. He has gotten up, and what is going to be next? Well, what does he do? He inquires of the Lord. And I, like, I think this is a good thing. This is a good start to the chapter. David inquires of the Lord. I mean, it's been a long night for David. Just think of the roller coaster that David has been on. Remember, it's not ending it just keeps going, the ups and the downs, the loss and the sadness. But it is a new day. And what does David do the morning after? He goes to God. He goes to God. What, what do you want me to do, God? What do you want me to do? That's what he's asking. Like, I am, I am stuck I mean, he is in the rubble. He is in the ashes of, of his home in Ziklag. His family is now with him. The king is dead, but he is living in Philistine territory. And, and, and after all the loss, what does he do? He goes to God and says, now what? Now what? What do you want me to do now? We have no king. I'm living in the Philistine land. Where do I go? What do I do? Lead me. And so this was a phrase, this David inquired of the Lord. This is a staple of the life of David. We see it through the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 23. 
David at this point was a fugitive running from Saul, but he hears about Keilah, this Israel territory that's being ransacked by the Philistines. They're, they're going in and they're stealing from their threshing floors. And so David hears this and he has this heart to go and to save the people of Keilah, but he's a fugitive. So he's torn. God, what do I do? And the text tells us he inquired of the Lord, should I go? It doesn't make a lot of sense. And what does God say to him there? Go. Chapter 30, we see the same phrase again. He comes home to Ziklag. His homes have, the homes have been burnt. His family is gone. David is at the bottom of all bottoms. What do I do? Where do I go? And the text says he inquired of God on what he should do. And what does God say to him? David, go get your family. I know you don't know where they are. I will show you where they are. Go and rescue them. And so now, again, this morning, after the weeping and the lamenting of the loss of King, what does David do? He inquires of the Lord, where do I go now? What do I do? And so I think at this point, let me make just a quick side point. I think I should have probably been more clear with this last week, so I want to go back and do it now. But we need to be careful at this point in the story on how we understand this passage speaking to our lives today. We have to be careful because the default or the natural thing to do is to read a passage like this and to read a passage like last week and say, well, yeah, God's teaching me how to lament. He's teaching me how to inquire of the Lord. And what we do is when we make this devote, we make this very devotional. I am David. I will lament like David lamented. I will inquire of the Lord like David. And I will wait for God to clearly respond. This is what David did. This is what I'm going to do. So we ask, we wait, and then we obedient follow. Be like David. Inquire. Should I take this job in Baltimore? Inquire of the Lord. Wait and listen. Where should I go to college? Inquire of the Lord. Wait and listen for the still small voice. Where should we go to eat today after church? Inquire of the Lord. Wait and listen. And so we, what we do, very naturally do, is we take an Old Testament story like this, and we just we insert ourselves into the main, as the main character. Let's inquire like David inquired. Let's mourn like David mourned. The same thing happened last week. The, some of our college students in the first service quartered me after the service. That's a strong word. They came and had a conversation with me because they wanted to know more about this lamenting that David did and the righteous anger that David showed. And their question was, is this the kind of righteous anger that we're supposed to have? And I think the way I said it last week was, it's helpful to take principle, it's helpful to see the principles for lamenting from chapter one, but it's not the main thrust of the text. I probably should have said it clear, more clearly than even that. Chapter one is not a guide for us on how to lament. It just isn't. And, and how can I say that? Well, what did David do with the person who brought the news who he didn't like very much? 
he took off his head. The college just, oh, okay, can we do that? No, you can't. This isn't a guide for us on how to react to someone who brings us news that we don't like. David took his head off. And so I think the, the, the idea here is, is that we have to be careful about how we insert ourselves into this Old Testament narrative. And, and the reality is, is that you're not David. You're not David, and I'm not David. This isn't a one-to-one guide on how to weep and then how to inquire of the Lord. In other words, just because this is how David inquired of the Lord to hear about the future for David doesn't mean that's how God works today with us. In fact, I don't think that is how God works today. Show me in the New Testament. Show me in the New Testament where we're taught that we are to go to God and that he will reveal to us by speaking to us the location about where we're to go. It it just doesn't happen very often, if ever happens. But instead, I've said this many times with you, what do we see in the New Testament with Jesus as he teaches us how to pray and how to think about the future? Is it figuring out the right formula so that we discovered the place because of the cloud formation or a song or something else? No, what does Jesus focus on? Jesus teaches us that he cares more about who we are as people than about where we are. It's not some location that we have to discover, but when we're praying for God's will, Jesus spends a whole lot more time talking about who you are as a person. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, for this is the will of God, the future will of God that you move to Baltimore and take that job. No, your sanctification is the future will of God. What is the future will that God wants you to know? Not the place, but who are you going to be? Your sanctification, you avoid sexual immorality. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5. And so the pause here is to simply say, we must be careful about how we understand the text and how we apply it to our lives. God was doing something very differently with David than what he does with us today. This was a very specific time in history. And so here we see with David, he's, he is speaking to David because his location was paramount. I mean, he is the king. And from this king, Jesus is gonna come. And so this was a very unique time. And so what does God tell him? He says, go up to Hebron. Okay, this is, I'll put the, a map up there. Ziklag, it's, you're, you probably can't, well, you can't see it because it's not on the map. It's west of Beersheba, okay, and it's about 25 miles up to Hebron. Okay, it's about a 3,000 feet elevation change. If you don't hike much, that's a lot. Like, that's exhausting. And so here, here David is told, go up to Hebron. This was in Judah, okay, in Israel. And, and for a lot of reasons, it makes sense that he would have to go here on top of this mountain in this little village. In this area was where he defeated Goliath. This is where he was anointed the first time. But also historically, Hebron is a, is a very significant location. This is where Abraham received the promise of God, that through your family, Abraham, you're going to bless the world. This is where Abraham received the promise of the land, that this is the land that you're going to go and take. And so by sending David to this specific location in Hebron, what God is saying, he's saying, David, you are the key to continuing the covenant of Abraham. 
This location is important. Your reign and your rule is going to continue. And David's about to get a new covenant. But what God is doing here, he's not teaching us how to pray about a future location. What is God, he's reminding us that God is continuing to fulfill all his promises. I mean, think of all the craziness that's happened the last couple chapters. The death and the sadness and the weeping and the mourning, the high highs and the low lows. And here we get David is king and he is in Hebron. And he is the king and God is fulfilling all his promises in a way that we could have never expected, never anticipated. Yet here we are. David is now anointed. And that's verse 4. The men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So this would have been David's second anointing, if you remember, way back. I mean, it feels, it wasn't just, it was six, six months ago, back in chapter in chapter uh, 16, at the beginning of the story, David, you remember he was anointed once, it was with his brothers before Goliath, but that anointing was, was very private. I don't even know that David knew completely what God was anointing him for, okay, but it was with his brothers, they didn't like it, it's a little confusing, but now we have a public anointing. The men of Judah, this little section of Israel has now taken you, David, poured the oil upon you saying, the Holy Spirit is with you to empower you to be the king that God made you to be. And so this was the public anointing for David to be the king. But I think what really stands out about this verse is how quick the verse comes to an end. I mean, how quick this happens. You know, we've been anticipating this. Hopefully you've been anticipating when is David going to be the king? It's why we didn't move on to another book. We, we've been waiting for David to finally be crowned as king. When's the coronation? Remember Frozen, the movie, we talked about it. I mean, that's what we're anticipating. We're excited, finally. And what do we get? I mean, we get a few words. I mean, it is the most unexciting, unimpressive, nondescript event ever. I mean, this is, not very, this is not very exciting. It's a non-event, a non-event. One verse, one little verse. But this is how it begins. This is how his kingdom begins. My favorite commentary for 2 Samuel, Dale Ralph Davis describes it this way. He says, it's a small beginning, but it's the kingdom, the, the kingdom of God, concrete, visible, earthy. The kingdom of God has for the moment tucked itself away in the hills of Judah. Tucked itself away in the hills of Judah. Small beginning, and it's going to be the same kind of beginning we're going to see much later, isn't it? A small beginning of the king. The birth of Jesus is going to start this way. Not some flashy, ritzy, big grand announcement, but Jesus the king, his beginning is going to be a small beginning too, but it's going to grow to be an oak tree, right? It's going to start like an acorn, and it's going to grow to be an oak tree. Small beginning, but with great things to come. And this is what we see with David. This is what we're going to see with him. And so God is working. Now David's king, verse 5 through 7 the question is, he's now king, what's David going to do? 
I mean, I think I found myself inserting myself into the text thinking, like, it is finally time. I am the king. What am I going to do? I mean, we've been waiting for this to happen. Poor David. His life has been a train wreck. It's been a wreck. I mean, it's just been constantly awful. It's like, now what are you going to do? You are finally king, David. What's going to be the first thing you do? You have the power. You have the power, David. We were talking with our kids this week, and we asked them, we asked them this question. If you had absolute power to do, this is a dangerous question, parents. If you had absolute power to do anything in the world, what would be the first thing you would do? And so I won't tell you who said what, but you might guess. The first one spoke up surprisingly, said, he would change the voting age so that I could vote. I thought, wow, you must not be happy with certain things, but he wants to vote. That was the first thing he said. I want to be able to vote. The second one spoke up, um, and they said, they would build more homeless shelters like Water Street. Yeah, that's, but don't be too impressed till my third, third, uh, the third said they would give everyone a, Bug- a, Bug- a Bugatti and a Bible. So a Bugatti, you know Bugatti? We have some car kids. A Bugatti is a $2 million car. But don't worry, there's a Bible in every, there's a Bible in it, Dad. Ay, ay, ay. I mean, what's David going to do? What's he going to do? Is he going to relax a little? I mean, he's been living in caves on the run, Take the Jordan River, go float down the river or something, like build a castle, build a temple, go, go strike down the Philistines. They just killed Saul and Jonathan. Like, what are you going to do, David? I mean, the options are endless. I'm thinking, go make things right. But he does none of those things. I think it's really telling to the kind of man that David is by looking at his first act as king. Verse five, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, may you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. And now may the the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you and I'll do good to you because you've done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul, your Lord, is dead. The house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What a magnificent first act. David sends missionaries. He sends people to go to Jabesh Gilead to share about the good news of God. This is what he does. Now, do you remember who Jabesh Gilead, who these people were? These were supporters of Saul. Way back in chapter 11, Nahash, the Ammonite, comes to Jabesh Gilead And he looks on the sorry state of these people and he says to them, you guys are hopeless. It's it's awful. He says to them, I'm gonna give you two options. Option one, you can take your eye out, one of your eyes out, and you can fall in line as my troops. Okay, that's not a good option. Option two, I will kill you. So they're like, that's not good. These are not good options. And he says, it's so bad, I'm gonna give you some time to think about it. And so they think about it and they start trying to find someone who can help them stand up against this evil Nahash character. And who do they find? Well, they find Saul. And what does Saul do at first? I mean, they're kind of skeptical of Saul. This is the story where Saul 
kind of strangely, cut up oxen into the Tupperware, remember that? And sends it out to everyone to impress, not Tupperware, but in some kind of container. I mean, I pictured the Tupperware, but he sends them out and, and he impresses all the people. And they see, look at this man and look at what he's done. He can lead us. And so what happens, Israel falls in line. Jabesh Gilead falls in line behind Saul. The text says they, they were mustered together at Bezek. I mean, you've got this unified people of Jabesh Gilead under the leadership of Saul. And what do they do? They strike down the Ammonites in the heat of the day. That's what chapter 11 tells us. And so Jabesh Gilead, to this, to, to this day, at this point in the text, they were loyal to Saul. I mean, they loved Saul. This is why at the end of chapter, at the end of 1 Samuel, what did they do? They risked their lives to go get his body. We will do anything for Saul. He saved us. We will sneak in, get his body and Jonathan's body, and we will honor their bodies. And they wept and they fasted. And so now David steps in. He sees this loyalty and he sends them messengers. And it's, it should completely throw you off as you read the text. Why, David? These are enemies. T technically, I mean, they were Saul's supporters. That meant they were not super excited about what David was doing. Yet, David sends them messengers. And, and as you read the story, you're like, you're, you're kind of putting yourself in all the positions here. Like, Jabesh Gilead, like, what are, what are these guys going to do? I mean, it's 70 miles, a 70-mile journey. You've been sent from David. Saul is now dead. Like, are you going to hurt us? But what do they come with? They come with a very simple message that God would bless them and that God would show them steadfast love and faithfulness. I mean, how, how incredible is that? I mean, just imagine being one of those messengers 70 miles, they had to go down one mountain, they have to cross the Jordan River, and they have to go up, up, and then up over another mountain, 70 miles, and it is for a very simple message. May God bless you, and may God show you his steadfast love and faithfulness. That's it. That's it. We're done here. Like, that, that's all we have. Like, this is the good news. We want you, David wants you to know that he wants you, he longs for you, wishes for you, prays for you, that you would understand the blessing, the love, and the faithfulness of God. And it is the same for you and me today, that God wants you to know the blessing and the love and the faithfulness of God. And that's why he sent messengers that's why he sent messengers to Jabesh Gilead. And as I was thinking, how can I describe the beauty and the worth and the value of the steadfast love of God to you today? Because God wants you to know his love for you. And, and honestly, as I was trying to put words to how to capture the love of God for you right now, I felt like my words fall way short. The only thing I could think of was a story of when my kids were born. And I've shared this before. But especially when my daughter was born, my first, our first child. And do you remember that moment for you? 
I mean, it is a moment that is, it is hard to put into words the joy that you feel, the joy that I felt when I was holding that little peanut. I mean, just holding her. And she cried, she cried for a long time, years actually. And it didn't change the amount of love that I had for her. That even though things weren't always easy, I loved her to the moon and nothing was changing that. And, and maybe you've felt that. And, and to me, that's a small picture of God's, the, the word that's used here, steadfast love for you. His love for you does not change and it does not waver. It doesn't waver. And that his love is a redeeming love. Psalm 107 describes it as this love that comes and gets you from the north and the west and the east and the south. It says he's, his, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemer of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. His love comes and rescue you, rescues you and finds you whatever mess you're in. God's love is steadfast. It's not going to be shaken or moved by whatever mess that you're in. It's a love that's costly. And this, this is what David sends these, these missionaries. For. Go tell them about the love and the faithfulness of our God. But here's what's so great about this, this blessing that David sends. In this culture, when you bless someone, so typically it was a father to his sons. And Jacob does this with his sons at the end of the book of, the end of, the book of Genesis. He gathers his sons and he blesses them. And, and a blessing is like a, a wish or a hope. May God, may God bless you. May God give you peace. May God make, give you prosperity. May God take care of you. It's, it's a wish or a hope or a prayer for someone you adore. And so part of this is, God adores us. There's the blessing that God gives to us. He adores us. And this is what a father does with his sons. I hope and pray because I cherish you that you would experience the love of God. But it's not just a wish. So when Jacob gets his sons together, it's not just, well, I really hope I'm dying, but I really hope for the rest of your life you experience these great things. It's more than that. What a father would also do with the blessing would, would be he would give his sons the land, gives him his, his wealth, gives him his livestock, as if to say, I don't just wish that you would have this long, healthy, happy life. I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you what I have that will help you get there. There's a very practical aspect to a blessing, especially from a father to a son that says, I don't just wish it. I want to give you everything I have, even if it costs me everything, so that you can be on the path to get it. And so they give land and money and resources. Well, this is what David's doing. If you look, look back at the, at the text in verse 6 and 7, it's not just, Jabesh Gilead, I really hope you find God's love and God's faithfulness. No, verse 7 tells them, how is verse 6 going to happen? Now, therefore... I'm sorry, let's, let's back up verse six. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. That's the blessing. But get the, look at this next line. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. 
verse seven. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant for Saul, your Lord is dead. The house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What is he saying? He's saying, do you wanna understand the love and the faithfulness and the blessing of our great God? I am the one that will do good things to you. I am the one, I am the new king. And if you come and you valiantly come and you submit to me as king, through me, God is gonna show you his, faith, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, and his blessing. In other words, this isn't just a wish. Well, I really hope you find it. God bless, good luck, see you later. It's no, I want to give it to you if only you would take the loyalty you showed to Saul. Remember that? They showed loyalty to Saul. What he's saying is, take that loyalty, which is such a good thing, transfer it to me. Transfer it to me. Such a great quality. Take it and submit to me as your king. And guess what? You will discover a love and a faithfulness you've never experienced in all of your life. But all you have to do, submit to me. Come to me. And you've got to recognize this wouldn't have been easy for them. I mean, they are up north. They're, the Philistines have started to conquer at least some portion of the north. Like This would not have been easy for them to do. But he's saying, if you do, if you do, you will discover the love and the faithfulness of God. I mean, what a, what a great picture for us today of what God's done for us. So that when we say, God bless you, we don't just mean be happy, live a, have a good life. I really hope things go well for you. When we say God blesses us, we mean it's more than just that he adores us. And he does. He does. To him, we are valuable and significant and we are cherished by the Father. But when we say God bless you, it's more, it should be more than just he really delights in you. But what does he do? He has done everything in his power, everything he can, so that that blessing can be our everyday reality and experience. That's why he sent Jesus. He pays every cost, fulfills every requirement, so that the blessing of peace and love and faithfulness can be ours in Jesus. That's why Christ came. And it is a, it is a wonderful thing that God is... God isn't a God who just loves us, but he provides the way so that we can live under the refuge of his love and faithfulness through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But we have to submit to him. You have to submit to him. The king who went to the cross, and we have to be valiant and be strong because there are pools in our life, pools pulling us, our allegiances to all these other places. But listen, there's no better place than to submit your life to King Jesus. There's nothing better than resting under the refuge of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. It reaches to the skies. It's new every morning. It's always with you. It redeems you. There's nothing better. And so the message for us is come to the King of Kings and submit your life to him. What's interesting about the passage is it doesn't tell us what, doesn't tell us what Jabesh, what they do. Like the story is unfinished. But what are you gonna do? Where are you? How are you gonna respond? 
Instead, the story goes a different direction. And we're out of time. But, but Abner, verse 8. But Abner. Let me give you a contrast is what he's saying. Let me, let me share a story of someone who doesn't do what Jabesh Gilead should have done. Let's, let's be introduced to this other guy named Abner. What does Abner do? He sets up a new king, Ishbosheth. You're like, who in the world is Ishbosheth? Not Mephibosheth. He's coming. Another son. Another son. A younger son. But what is Abner doing? And we'll talk about him next week. He's saying, I don't want to submit to David. I want to be my own king. I want to do my own thing. And, and listen, that's an option for you. I have lots of Abners in my life who say, no, I want to live my life my way. And, and typically that, that doesn't end well. But it's an option. But we're going to see through the story of Abner next week that, that it's not a great option. There's no better place than submitting to the King of Kings who gives us a love and faithfulness that is unlike anything else in this world. And so it's my prayer that that would be us submitting to the King and resting in his love. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we thank you for this story. And we're thankful, God, that we have these, these truths about who you are that can teach us today. And I pray, God, that we would submit to you. That, many of, that, that some of us here have been resisting, bowing before you and their life, and they know it, that things aren't working well. God, I pray that today they would submit to Jesus as king and rest in your love and faithfulness. You sent Jesus here to give us the message of love and faithfulness, and you paid for it by going to the cross. God, may that overwhelm us with gratitude as we sing and as we live our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.